This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Andrew Jurak. He's the CEO and founder of Dirac. Professor Jurak is an innovator and entrepreneur in the global quantum technologies ecosystem, leading teams in both industry and academia. He holds a PhD in physics from the University of Cambridge in the UK and a BSc from the University of Sydney. He was a key participant over 20 years ago in the establishment of the Australian Research Council Center for Quantum Computer Technology, working with Professor Bob Clark. The ARC Center now maintains the world's largest focused collaboration on silicon-based quantum computing. Andrew, with his colleague Andrea Morello, demonstrated the world's first silicon quantum bits, qubits, in 2012, and over the past decade has developed a naturally scalable qubit technology by reconfiguring the ubiquitous CMOS transistors that make up all of today's silicon processor chips. His company, Dirac, is a world leader in silicon quantum dot quantum computing. The company's goal is to revolutionize full-stack quantum computing by driving qubit numbers on a single chip to the billions, the number needed for useful commercial applications compared to the hundreds of qubits that exist today. Dirac's technology leverages the more than 50 years and trillions of dollars already invested in the semiconductor industry in order to develop and produce silicon CMOS qubits. In addition, Dirac will be an end-to-end quantum computing provider, providing quantum hardware and software as a full-stack cloud-accessible service. So welcome, Andrew, and thanks for joining me. Well, Chris, thanks very much for having me. Great to chat to you. So, Andrew, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And to be honest, my objective is twofold, certainly to give our audience more detail around what you did before you founded Dirac, and also to orient our audience more broadly to the many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. Can you share with our listeners a bit about your background and your path so far, where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied, um, and any insight into organizations where you worked or conducted research? I'm I'm an Aussie. I I was uh, born and grew up in uh, north of Sydney, a town called Newcastle, which, as you can probably guess, is a big coal mining centre. Um, and I guess what got me into physics originally was, like so many people I know, it was astronomy. I was fascinated by astronomy and astrophysics as a kid, sort of, you know, eight years old, got a book about astronomy and then just, you know, got my first telescope at 10 or something like that. And so I, I originally I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And um, so after graduating high school, went to the University of Sydney and studied physics. And uh, but at that time, I started to get more interested in what can actually be done, you know, to change the world with physics and uh, got interested in uh, semiconductors at that time. Uh, I was also doing a computer science degree um, jointly at the time, so I was a joint physics and computer science major. And then I had the opportunity to get a scholarship to go to Cambridge uh, in England. And um, I did my PhD there in uh, the semiconductor physics group. Um, with a really amazing guy, now knighted Sir Michael Pepper, who was one of the people who was involved in the first demonstration of phenomenon 
called the Nobel, sorry, called the uh, Quantum Hall Effect, which got the Nobel Prize in 1980. Um, and the group um, did some really groundbreaking work on uh, semiconductor nanostructures, uh, trying to reduce semiconductor devices down to very small scales and studying quantum effects in those. So while I was there, I was looking at things called quantum dots, which I now use for our qubits, but I was using a different material, uh, gallium arsenide at the time. And then uh, towards the end of my PhD, I uh, met another Australian, a guy called Bob Clark, who'd just returned from Oxford University uh, to set up a lab at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, uh, in central Sydney. Uh, and so moved back to join uh, Bob's group, who was a professor there uh, in 1994 and uh, did some work uh, setting up some semiconductor nanotechnology work. But also at the time, um, we had a really uh, brilliant guy called Bruce Kane, uh, who was another postdoc like myself in, in Bob's group in the mid 90s. And he came up with the idea of uh, how to make quantum bits in silicon. And his concept was based on uh, using uh, single atoms, single dopant atoms in silicon. And uh, so the um, Centre for Quantum Computer Technology, which you mentioned, it's now expanded to be called the Centre for Quantum Computation and Communication Technologies, has now been running for um, well over 20 years. So Bob Clark founded it in 2000. Current director is uh, a woman called Michelle uh, Simmons, who also was in Cambridge while I was over there as well. So, uh, so you know, it's a very small world. And so really it's been a journey for over well over 20 to 30 years uh, to get to the point where I am now. Wow, thank you for sharing that that background. Fascinating. The Qu question it begs is, you know, uh, I know you're still serving in academic roles. We'll talk about more more about that in a moment, but I want to ask how you came to found Dirac. You know, what made you want to take this technology that had been established at the ARC Center and move it into the private sector? And also, please share how you came up with the name for the company. So, uh, as a matter of fact, I I recognized very, very early on, probably in the early 2000s, that um, if quantum computing could be made possible, that it, it would be a world-changing technology. And so very early on, I, I saw the commercial implications and, and indeed with, with my colleagues, you know, began to file some initial patents uh, on the technology that was being developed. Um, of course, it took a while to get to the point where the technology reached the maturity that it was really commercializable. Um, and probably the biggest breakthrough came for me around 2014 when, with my team, we showed that we could modify a standard silicon transistor, you know, just this, the same type as we use on all the degraded circuits in our phones and laptops, and showed that we could operate it as a uh, very high accuracy or high fidelity quantum bit. And um, I mean, I, I patented that idea at the time, I was very conscious of its commercial value. And so from that time onwards, was really looking at forming a company. And um, it, it was a rather, you know, complex, as, as most of these things are, a com complex process to eventually get there. Um, but eventually we were able to spin out from the university in May last year. Um, with some uh, private equity that we raised. Uh, and um, we have a great arrangement with the university whereby my entire, my entire team is able to be on campus. Uh, but, you know, going to your question about the name of the company, yeah. um, I think a lot of uh, people who work in uh, physics will, will recognise the name. It, it's taken um, from one of the three founders of quantum mechanics in the 1920s, a gentleman called Paul Dirac. So Dirac... Um, 
along with Erwin Schrodinger and uh, Werner Heisenberg, were really the three people who formulated the core concepts of quantum mechanics in the 1920s. And uh, Dirac and uh, Schrodinger of cat fame, uh, they, they jointly got the Nobel Prize in 1933 for their work. Um, so, yeah, and it's not only the fact that quantum mechanics underpins, obviously, what we do in our company, but also um, Dirac um, combined his original concept of quantum mechanics with Einstein's special relativity and formulated a thing called the Dirac equation. Hmm. And the Dirac equation uh, predicted, before it was even known, the existence of antiparticles. And also, what falls out of that equation naturally is the um, phenomenon of electron spin. So, and uh, the spin of an electron is a tiny magnetic moment associated with the electron in addition to its charge. And we use the spin to encode the information on our quantum bits. So there are many connections of why our company is well connected uh, to Paul Dirac and, you know, an absolute, I mean, in my view, um, equally a giant to someone like um, Albert Einstein. Wow. Now, thank you for sharing that. I was not aware till I was preparing for our, our conversation. And I think it's just terrific to, you know, pay homage to one of the leading thinkers in this space. So here we are, you know, a century later, taking advantage of their brilliant uh, insights. Absolutely. You know, well, if you think about it, um, you know, Einstein at the time, um, of course, naturally his uh, his concepts led to the understanding of both, you know, nuclear energy, but also weapons, but also his, um, you know, uh, general relativity allowed us to understand the timing that we now use all the time for GPS navigation, which has changed the world. And I see what, what's coming out of quantum mechanics at the moment um, in quantum computing, I think is going to be equally world-changing in the future. So Dirac, your company, promises to provide universal and fault-tolerant uh, error-corrected qubits in vast numbers in a tightly packed architecture, kind of you described the, the revelation you had, le you know, leveraging this existing sort of approach. Uh, I read that the company maintains 28 patents and patent applications covering a detailed CMOS-based architecture for billions of qubits, my goodness, um, capable of full error correction, advanced methods for qubit control, quantum memory, as well as innovative CMOS device designs. Can you tell our listeners more about how you're applying this IP? As I mentioned, the, the thing that really... Um changed things for me was when we showed that we could convert a transistor into a high accuracy quantum bit. The great advantage of that is that we can then use the same manufacturing um, plants that are used to make standard computer chips, use exactly the same tooling. We don't have to change anything. Um, we just run a different fabrication process with those same tools and we can make um, large numbers of quantum bits because the size of our quantum bits are the same size as standard transistors. And at the moment, uh, a modern integrated circuit uh, has billions of transistors on it or can have at, at the, you know, using tier one chip foundries. Right. So, so that means that we're able to get that same number on. Now, there are some um, differences in the way that we route the wiring and so on. And so there's engineering work to be done um, in partnership uh, with our foundry partners to do this. Um, but a lot of the IP that we've been developing is focused on both how to operate those qubits in those chips and how to appropriately control 
large numbers, millions of qubits. So for example, um, just over the last couple of years, we've had some patents and also uh, uh, you know, followed up by papers, uh, journal papers, describing the way that we can control large numbers of qubits uh, with a single microwave driving field. So in a, in a kind of a crude sense, you could think of this as like having a clock in a standard microprocessor. The clock is driving the qubits at a constant um, rate. Hmm. Um, and then we address the qubits using voltage pulses on the gate electrodes, much like one addresses um, you know, transistors in a, in a dynamic RAM or something like that. Well, let's talk about manipulating qubits. So I, I read about your um, SMART qubit protocol, which uh, turns out is an acronym that stands for sinusoidally modulated, always rotating and tailored, mm-hmm. right? S-M-A-R-T. Um, yep. And your team showed that coherence times could be extended with so-called quote-unquote dressed qubits, meaning that you have, rather than qubits spinning in circles, you manipulate them so they rock back and forth like a metronome with coherence times of more than 230 microseconds. So just to give our listeners a comparison, in the famous Google and IBM superconducting quantum computers, the lifetime is about 100 microseconds, nearly a million times shorter. So what are the broader implications of this kind of qubit manipulation? So the most important aspect of the SMART protocol is that it involves control techniques that allow us to control millions of qubits at the same time. So, and it also takes into account the fact that in any so-called solid state system, uh, a a silicon chip, for example, it's the same with, you know, superconducting devices as well. You're always going to have some variability from one qubit to the next. It's only, it's only a small difference, but those differences can be crucial in creating errors. So one of the core aspects of the SMART protocol is it is designed to use one of these so-called global driving fields. It uses one microwave field that keeps all of the spins rotating, but it's robust against variations between each individual qubit. So it's very tolerant to variations. And this is really, really crucial if you're going to have millions of qubits. You, 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 you know, it's, it, it's a dream to have every qubit exactly identical. They're always going to be a little bit different. So what we've designed is a protocol that can cope with that variability and furthermore, um, it, allow, it allows us to perform all of the standard um, operations and error correction required to do fault-tolerant computing. Just to you know, dig into a couple of the technicalities of it, yeah. um, the, you know, the always rotating aspect, um, which is connected to this term address qubit, relates to the fact that um, one way in which qubits are traditionally particularly spin qubits are traditionally controlled is that we only apply a a microwave resonance frequency when we're actually changing the state of the qubit. So we might change it from a zero or a one, or, you know, more interestingly, we put it into a superposition state of zero and one. And we do that by applying a short pulse of microwaves for a specific amount of time, okay, to do that rotation of the spin. Hmm. But in the dressed approach, the always rotating approach, we're actually driving the spins continuously. Uh, And then what we do in order to address them, to make a change, we actually tune them slightly off that resonance frequency. And that creates 
single qubit operations between on those individual qubits. And um, one of the benefits of this, and the reason why it extends the coherence time, is that by constantly rotating the spin, it actually protects the qubits against electromagnetic noise that can otherwise lead to errors or decoherence. Got very, very technical there, but that's, that's, that's why uh, it's important. But it's, it's very much focused on scalability because our, our company, uh, you know, our technical team's approach is all about designing systems to go into the many millions, which, by the way, I mean, we're not just doing it because uh, we want to have a lot. Uh, we really need millions of qubits in order uh, to solve problems that, you know, are both commercially and globally important. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that level of detail. I think it's always interesting to our listeners to, to get that level of granularity around how, how your approach uh, is working. Uh, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, the, the fact that you're leveraging, you know, the 50 years and trillions of dollars invested in like silicon fabrication approaches, best practices, learnings, whatever. Um, can you tell our listeners about any plans to work with like tier one chip foundries, like Glo Global Foundries or another um, partner and, you know, share your perspective on the challenges as well, maybe the benefits of these kinds of strategic relationships. The benefits are obvious. Um, yeah. So, you know, in our laboratory um, on campus in Sydney, uh, we've, we have great um, nanofabrication facilities to make semiconductor and silicon devices. Um, and, and we've used those over more than a decade to demonstrate high accuracy qubits but it's limited in the number of qubits that we can make, the number of devices we can make on a single chip. And that's because it's very difficult to get really precise engineering controls over the manufacture in a university environment. You know, we, we've got, fabric, our fabrication facilities probably have had, you know, well over a hundred million, a couple of hundred million dollars of tooling sunk into them over the last 15 years, which is a significant amount for a university. But to right. put it in perspective, um, a tier one fabrication plant of the type that, you know, um, Intel or Global Foundries or TSMC or Samsung have, their fabrication plants cost around about $10 billion right. starting price. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the reason for that is that the machines they use are incredibly um, precision controlled. Um, they almost never change any process steps. Every step they do, whether it's um, etching the silicon or it's uh, depositing a layer of a metal or another material, um, or it's depositing or, or it's uh, performing what's called lithography where you pattern the features onto the chip. Those processes have to be identical every single time. And the reason for that is that, you know, if we want our, our iPhones to work or we want our laptops to work, we need every one of those billion transistors on that chip working and we need each chip to be working. Yeah. So the engineering controls are incredible. I mean, that's why uh, it's, it, that, that's where the trillions of dollars of investment have gone and the more than 50 years of effort, you know, millions of, millions of hours of man effort and woman effort over that time yeah. to to get this precision. So we can't do it in a university to get that level. Um, that's why we have to partner with um, Tier 1 Foundries. And, and um, we, we're in a number of uh, relationships with Tier 1 Foundries. I, I can't state them for commercial confidentiality reasons. Yeah, understood. Uh, but but 
um, we have excellent relationships with a number of foundries and also R&D foundries uh, that work in this space. And, uh, you know, we have on our roadmap um, the target to be uh, demonstrating high fidelity qubits that have been made in chip foundries uh, within the next three years. And uh, that's a very, very important step for us because, uh, and, and for our foundry partners, because once that's demonstrated, um, we can then uh, start scaling up massively the number of qubits on a chip. Because, you know, really one of the reasons that um, integrated circuits and Moore's law has worked so well is that if you can make one, you can make a million. You know, because because our because our devices are so small, in fact, we can get up to a billion on a single chip. So our initial plans, um, once we've made these demonstrations in this three-year period, is to go to very very many thousands. Uh, I can't say exactly how many, again, for commercial reasons, but um, we are looking at very very um, highly dense uh, quantum processor chips um, in the next um, three to six years. So let's talk about roadmap. I I, um, I look on your website. You laid out a ten year roadmap with solution development broken into three phases. Mm -hmm. Phase one being accelerating development of in house capabilities and the launch uh, fabrication of foundry devices. Mm -hmm. uh, phase two is described as a transition from physical to logical qubit operations, and beginning massive scale up of foundry services. Mm -hmm. um, and then phase three, starting implementation of commercially viable algorithms and achieving a fully quantum error corrected processor. So tell our listeners about the roadmap and you know how you see some of the challenges ahead in achieving your proposed milestone. So um, I've kind of covered largely um, phase one, which is for this first three years uh, right. a moment ago. So the aim is with our foundry partners to demonstrate um, high fidelity one qubit and two qubit logic with them um, manufactured on a full 300 meter 300 millimeter wafer line or 12 inch wafer yeah. um, in parallel um, which I didn't mention is that we're going to continue our work of making qubits um, in Sydney in our university fab um, we actually we're, we're intending only to go up around nine or ten qubits locally although that you know we can't take it to the level that our foundry partners can we actually develop a lot of new concepts and intellectual property and, and solve problems and come up with new ideas by doing that. I mean, all of the IP, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I think, 28 patents. I think we've actually got, we, we need to update some of the numbers on our website. I think we've actually got over 40 now um, around the world. Those come about by doing experiments, um, you know, coming up with new ideas. It's, it's really only by operating qubits that you can really, um, you know, identify both the opportunities and the problems. So, so that's that's phase one, um, and uh, you know we're very comfortable about achieving um, you know the goals we've set there. Phase two is when we then do that scale up process um, with our foundry partner uh, and partners, and um, the as I said, we're looking at many thousands of qubits to be made uh, on a single chip. You also, as you mentioned, we're looking at um, demonstrating logical qubit operations. So just to explain, some, some listeners who are, who are in, in the quantum world um, will have heard this term before, but a logical qubit is a, um, is a collection of physical qubits, uh, and which is error corrected. And the number of qubits you need together you need to put together to create one logical error corrected logical qubit varies uh, um, from system to system or de depending on the accuracy of the qubits. So we're looking at um, requiring 
uh, a few tens of physical qubits to do our first logical qubit demonstrations. Um, to dive a little deeper into that, oh, maybe let me explain the motivation. The motivation is that physical qubits without error correction, if you try to do any form of a calculation um, that lasts more than you know a few tens of cycles, what happens is the errors just pile up and eventually the information just becomes mush and you get nothing out. Okay, so at the moment, all of the um, commercially available uh, quantum computing systems that are out there, and you know the maximum number is you know let's say between 50 and 100 or, or so um, in superconducting and iron trapped systems and so on, they are running without error correction. And the the term that's often used that some people will have heard is the acronym is NISC or Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum Processing. So the idea there is you just do as much calculating as you can before the information becomes garbage. Now, there was hope um, some time ago that useful algorithms could be made with that approach, you know, as the number goes up into the thousands of qubits or so. Um, unfortunately, it appears that that earlier hope is, is not looking uh, very good. Um, it's not ruling out that there won't be any applications that can be useful and people are working very hard and there's a lot of very bright people working on those problems but most people uh, who work in quantum algorithms and who understand quantum error correction the view is that we are going to need fully error corrected systems and what that means is we need to group our physical qubits into logical qubits that are error protected now so to give you an idea, and, and forgive me for being so technical, but it's difficult to understand. Yeah. To give you an idea of what the challenge is, current physical qubits sit anywhere in accuracy between 99% and maybe up to 99.99. Okay, so the most accurate um, qubit that we've operated in our CMOS devices is 99.96. So that's very, very accurate. But you know, even if you even if all of our gates were operating at that accuracy, which 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 at the moment we're not at that level with large numbers, um, it, the information would still become mush very quickly. And so what you really need is you need qubits that have accuracies, you know, or, relative, or the error of something like 10 to the minus 15, right? So that's 99 point another 13 nines, all right? Now that you're never going to have five, it. Yep. I think a five nines is sort of the, you know, standard... Uh, desired outcome but for sort of HPC settings or whatever. Exactly, right? yeah. Those, that's the sort of accuracy that you need to maintain in order to be doing, you know, for example, cracking codes with Shaw's algorithm or, or simulating pharmaceuticals and so on. And to do that, you have to group together a very large number of physical qubits. In fact, uh, most of the analyses uh, indicate that to get to 10 to the minus 15, you're probably going to need a thousand or even thousands of physical qubits just to make one logical qubit at that, at that level. So our focus in phase two is to develop the um, operation protocols to integrate classical CMOS chips, these are standard CMOS processors, although specially designed to operate at low temperature, with our qubit processor and do all the sequencing in a single module, a single module device, um, in order to demonstrate a logical qubit. Now, there's work going on uh, logical qubit development, you know, in other technologies uh, like iron traps and superconducting qubits, and they're making uh, good progress. But where they, where most of them are at the moment is only in the break-even. What I mean is they put together, say, 10 to 20 physical qubits, 
and they get a logical qubit that has the same error as the individual physical qubit after doing all error. Oh my. So so (laughs) there's quite a way to go and there's two ways to do this. Either you just have to keep pushing down the errors or pushing up the fidelities of your physical qubits or you take our approach, you just make a whole load of qubits with the sort of reasonable fidelities somewhere around, you know, three nines and, you know, you go to the millions. So our phase two is twofold. It's about pushing up the number of physical qubits, demonstrating that we can do that with a foundry partner to get into a phase where we will already be able to tackle the most advanced NISC problem sets, that's without error correction. At the same time, we develop the technology to get our logical qubits working. And then so, and then we jump to phase three, which is in around about six to seven years time. And in phase three, that's when we start to string together a million or more qubits on a chip. And we intend to have logical qubits interacting and performing fully error-corrected processing. And, and that's really when the big commercial returns will come because at that point we have, um, we, we can start to crack those problems that I talked about, like drug design and so on. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that, especially the physical to logical qubit corollary. That was terrific. You, you asked me about challenges and, you know, I, I do think it's important um, to be very you know honest and realistic about where the challenges are here. And what I would say is that um, the challenges are similar to when someone's bringing up a whole new microprocessor design. There's a huge amount of engineering that has to be done. Uh, to design and optimize the system. There's all sorts of issues related to heat management on the chip because we have to operate at cryogenic temperatures. That all needs to be optimized. Uh, And, um, you know, you have to, it's one thing to have something designed on paper or, or, you know, in CAD. It's a different thing to actually demonstrate that and get that manufactured. This working uh, at these scales, our, our feature sizes are 20 nanometers of order and below. It's, it's a time-consuming and, and uh, expensive business, but we're confident that um, the timescales that we've uh, designed are achievable. Um, and, you know, one of the great advantages is that we're using a technology platform that is very mature. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're designing, we're using the same CAD circuit design programs that are used to make standard chips. Um, obviously, we're adding in extra physics components in order to understand the operation of the qubits but much of the routing and so on really is just borrowing from the standard semiconductor industry toolbook so andrew i have to i have to ask the perennial question which is clients mm-hmm. so i read that um, you've generated more than 25 million uh, dollars in income for unsw since 2016 and just wondering if you can share with our listeners you know, the name, perhaps the names of clients who are using your technology and what kinds of results they're achieving. The $25 million perhaps that you're referring to um, is um, that was the uh, cash injection uh, from uh, our uh, recent investor, uh, Electus Capital, which is part of the ICM group. Um, that was used in order to um, spin the company out of the university um, purchase a lot of the IP and um, buy some um, capital equipment. Uh, okay. That 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 was essentially an investment. Okay. Um, okay. The, my prior to that, my teams raised you know around a hundred million dollars uh, in non-dilutive cap- capital through research grants and so on, both from 
the Australian Research Council and, and other Australian entities and our state government of New South Wales, and also quite a bit from US Army Research Office who have been funding us for many years. But, Fantastic. Uh, but that, that's really what's allowed us, you know, to develop all that IP. But at the moment, in terms of uh, commercial clients, what we're looking to do is to get one of our uh, qubit systems in a cloud accessible form as soon as possible. Um, so, you know, having launched only a year ago, uh, we're not selling any of these yet. But what I can say is that we are already talking to a, a couple of clients. And uh, what I'll say is that these are government clients at the moment. And I think that, you know, this is really uh, the way that a lot of the quantum computing industry is building up, that national governments are making investments in order to um, both help uh, stimulate the industry, uh, but also to learn so they can try to form views on what the best technology is forward. So what I can say is the clients we're talking to at the moment are primarily governments, uh, but we are, because we're, we're looking to provide access to these systems. But post that, we're looking, you know, talk to all of the usual customers that are looking at quantum computing, including large corporations that you would have heard of that are, you know, working with some of the uh, earlier systems from other, from other um, quantum computing companies. I mean, you know, one thing to appreciate is that at the moment, um, we have four operating qubits, um, some of our competitors in iron traps and superconducting um, qubits, so, you know, they've got many tens of qubits and approaching 100. And so it's understandable that a lot of uh, corporations are wanting uh, to play with those systems first. But what we're finding is that, um, you know, clients who appreciate the uh, potential of our CMOS approach and the ability to rapidly scale, uh, becoming more and more interested in accessing these systems, um, even before we get into the thousands, even while we are at the small scale. Yeah, very exciting. So I want to turn to a topic that's near and dear to me, which is around workforce development. Um, I want to get your take on the challenges facing a company like Dirac and finding talent. Now, worth noting, that uh, you're a Scientia professor in quantum engineering, if I mm -hmm. said that correctly, mm -hmm. yep. at UNSW Sydney. You're an ARC laureate fellow and a member of the executive board of the Sydney Quantum Academy. So this must give you visibility into, into a terrific talent pool, I would think. So I wonder how you leverage those relationships and any guidance for listeners on you know, how, to, uh, how to find talent to drive this. That's uh, a great question, Chris. Uh, so I, I should I should explain that um, the arrangement uh, that we negotiated with um, UNSW here, uh, my, my university, was such that um, effectively uh, myself and my team are able to um, do all of our research um, on campus, although we do also have um, off-campus um, facilities and offices, and we're looking to expand those more in the near future. Uh, but uh, I was able to maintain my position with the university and also my um, laureate fellow role with the um, Australian Research Council um, and effectively direct all of the work research that I do um, into Dirac, including all of uh, the intellectual property we develop. So it's a, it's a rather unique arrangement. It doesn't happen um, in many universities around the world, but our university decided that quantum computing was, you know, it, it, it had been worked on in our university for over two decades. It's seen as rather a jewel in the crown and they wanted to make, um, you know, benefit of it. I, you know, the university is a shareholder in our company and a very valued <laughs> one. So um, 
All right. So I mentioned all that just to explain my relationship with the university, but you know, my really most of what I'm doing is running the company, um, running the research team and our research projects uh, for our commercial focus. But being on campus is an enormous advantage. So coming to talent. Um, so my my colleague Andrea Morello, um, who I worked on with the first Silicon Qubits back in between 2010 and 2012. Um, he's now a, also a Centia professor in our School of Electrical Engineering, and Andrea, um, with colleagues um, in our EE school, established uh, one of the world's first full bachelor programs in quantum engineering um, mm-hmm. at our university. So, and they took the first intake uh, about two years ago, and I think in their first year they took a hundred in the first intake, and now they're well over that. And so these are undergraduate engineering students who will come out with a you know, a professionally accredited four-year Bachelor of Engineering degree, but majoring in quantum engineering. So they learn all about quantum computing, quantum communications, quantum sensing, et cetera. And uh, so we've got an amazing resource uh, here at our university. Beyond that, you mentioned the Sydney Quantum Academy. Uh, This is something I'm, you know, extremely excited about and and very proud of. It's something that... um, the four universities in Sydney, so my old alma mater, University of Sydney, plus my current one, UNSW, plus University of Technology, Sydney, and Macquarie University. So four big universities, um, all very close to each other in Sydney, joined together with our New South Wales state government and jointly invested to create the Sydney Quantum Academy. And the focus of that is both um, uh, building uh, the workforce, but also helping to stimulate the quantum economy helping to stimulate entrepreneurship and so on. Um, And one of the big things it does is it brings together all of the PhD students working in quantum technology across those four universities. They do uh, a variety of activities together. Um, They they get specialised teaching across the experts in the four universities. So we have an an amazing, I mean, I think think we've got, you know, well over 30 to 40 very, very world-leading professors across those four universities in quantum technology here in Sydney. And, you know, well over 100 PhD students coming out regularly, um, you know, each year. Um, So we've got an amazing talent pool here in Sydney. And so uh, I must say that um, I'm rather spoiled for choice. My my problem (laughs) is not finding talent. My problem is uh, at the moment uh, finding the money and resources to uh, hire the people I'd like to hire. Um, What what I will say um, to any... Uh, quantum companies around the world is if um, you know is if you really want talent, then come and kind of set up some capabilities here in Sydney. In fact, I know that a number of uh, external uh, international companies are already uh, doing that here in Australia to try to make use of this amazing talent pool that we have here. Yeah, well, in the Sydney Quantum Academy. What a brilliant idea that is! Uh, putting together a consortium of universities like that. Hope. I- some of our listeners will take that idea and run with it maybe in other settings. Um, so we, we're coming to the end of the podcast. I always like to end by asking my guests for their vision of you know, where they think quantum information science might be in, say, five to 10 years, and more broadly, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have on how we live and work? Okay, look, I think in five years, um, we're going to see more and more corporations um, exploring algorithms and finding new sorts of algorithms, be it in... Um, chemical processing, pharmaceutical design, um, financial modeling, and so on. So I think in, in that five-year period, it's going to be just a significant growth in the number of useful algorithms being identified. Uh, I think on that timescale, uh, what can actually be done 
um, of commercial value is is still going to be relatively limited because we won't be at fault tolerance. We won't have full error correction at that stage. Um, but in 10 years, uh, you know, and I mean, that's kind of where we intend to have error corrected processes. At that stage, I, I do believe that there are going to be um, algorithms that can be operated, um, you know, at the million qubit level, um, which are going to be starting to solve important problems in pharmaceutical design, um, potentially in quantum machine learning. And, um, you know, and it, it can start to solve some very, very uh, complex problems um, in uh, financial modeling, in uh, logistics and scheduling. For me personally, and, you know, whether this is 10 years or it's 15 or 20, um, the thing that I think ultimately could be world-changing is the ability to very, very rapidly uh, find new medicines uh, to, to attack um, diseases, um, viruses, uh, bacteria, and so on. We, we've just been through a horrible pandemic. And, you know, it, it was, I, 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 as, a, as a scientist and engineer, I'm immensely proud of the fact that the scientific community were able to get together, coordinate itself so incredibly well, and in, you know, literally one year, come up with a vaccine you know I, i've had four jabs and um you know i i've you know i've barely had a sniffle when i've, I've caught it caught COVID twice and you know but imagine if that could be done in a couple of weeks and more importantly imagine if we can you know find some cures for diseases that you know are crippling in the third world uh in in, the, in developing countries um yes. you know that that would be fantastic and 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 look if um if, if quantum computing can do that between 10 to 20 years, um, probably, you know, to really start to make this a routine thing, we're probably looking at 20 years, but I think we can get the first applications um, coming in 10, then, um, you know, I will, I will uh, go to my grave a happy man. Well, thank you, Andrew. What a wonderful way to end this. What a, gr a great note to, to feature here at the end of our conversation. I want to thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, speaking with you and learning about Dirac and uh, the great work you're doing and wishing you continued success. Well, thanks very much, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Great questions and really enjoyed it. All right, take care. So I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. I'm going to point them to your website, uh, Dirac.com. I noticed you're also on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, the handle is at DiracQC. Yes, that's right. I think uh, very active, particularly on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, please do come and look at the website where we've... Uh, you know, keep the latest news stories and activities uh, live there. Thanks, Andrew, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Andrew. I encourage you to listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.